It's five o'clock on Friday afternoon. My name's Jacob, here with you on Community Radio Station 3CR, and this is a Friday Rave. Yeah, well, as I said, it's Friday again, and that means it's a Friday Rave, and I'm I'm out here in the bush outside of Wedderburn, where I said weather burn because the weather's playing havoc and I hope the rain isn't distracting too much um, from the recording. But I'm joined online today, as I said I would be, um, by Clinton Fernandez from the University of New South Wales in Canberra, who's been on the show before. Listeners um, would be aware of Clinton from his, um, from his book, I hope, not only what Uncle Sam really wants, but from Ireland off the coast of Asia, which is a, um, a great bringing together of the history of Australia and sort of talks about why we do what we do and how we came to be where we are. And Clinton, welcome again to a Friday Rave. Good to be with you, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, I um, should acknowledge that being the 7th of August, that yesterday was Hiroshima Day, 75 years um, since um, a nuclear bomb was used in anger. Um, and while Two of I, them, in fact. Excuse me? Uh, two of them, in fact. Two of them. Well, the next, yeah, the next one's um, in Nagasaki. Um, and while we always say um, Hiroshima never again, I think it's probably a, Oh, what's the word? A, a time to say we keep saying never again, yet we keep rushing headlong into war as if we haven't learned the lessons of the past. Yeah. Uh, well, the, uh, it's a very solemn anniversary, of course. More than 70,000 men, women and kids were killed immediately. Uh, it's interesting, though, the munitions factories on the periphery of the city of Hiroshima were left largely unscathed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, such a nuclear attack would be illegal today, according to uh, recently published analysis, because it would violate three major requirements of the laws of armed conflict, namely distinction between combatants and non-combatants, proportionality, namely well, the amount of force you're using to achieve your objective, and precaution. See, um, the, there was a very famous dissenting opinion in 1996 at the International Court of Justice, which was asked for an advisory opinion on the legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. The court was unable to reach a conclusion on this because of the politics involved. There are great powers, with nuclear weapons powers, who appoint judges on that court. But one judge, Christopher Vera Muntry, uh, made a, an extremely uh, important point. He says that it's, it would seem passing strange Uh, that international humanitarian law can find within itself principles to outlaw an expanding bullet. Mm. The the expansion of a single bullet, a dum-dum bullet, inside the body of a single soldier uh, is against the laws of armed conflict. But the annihilation of an entire country or a generation that has not yet been born uh, or a country uh, uh, over whose uh, skies uh, a radiation cloud can, can spread and it's not even involved in the conflict. Why can that not be regarded as illegal? 
Yes, and 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 in 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 um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it, um, there were thousands of victims who were actually Korean prisoners of war and forced labour and so-called comfort women, basically. Yes. So yeah, I mean that's right. So the the, the expansion in the body of a single soldier for a single bullet is now excess is an excessive cruelty, uh, which international law uh, rules as illegal. But the incineration of 100,000 civilians is not. And so that's odd. So what he says is that every branch of knowledge benefits from a process of occasionally stepping back from itself and scrutinizing itself objectively for anomalies and absurdities. And if this anomaly or absurdity becomes apparent and remains unquestioned, that discipline is in danger of being seen, seen as floundering in the midst of its own technicalities. And that is the situation we are in with international criminal law. It is. It is. And of course, we see and Australia being complicit in some of the things that some of the things that are happening around to the world today, particularly the one that comes to mind immediately is Yemen with yeah. the sale of Australian weapons to the UAE and Saudi Arabia that are being used against um, a largely civilian population. Yes. On the, on the question of, of atomic weapons though, nuclear ones, um, <clears throat> there is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the TPNW. Yep. Uh, and a number of countries have signed. None of the nuclear weapon states have signed, but not even Japan has signed that treaty uh, because that would be incompatible, they say, with their alliance with the United States. And so um, what, what Australia says, this is uh, Richard Sadler testifying before the Senate. This is the first assistant secretary, sorry, assistant secretary at DFAT, uh, says that if we were to sign on to the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, then the Australia located elements of the US globally distributed systems of nuclear command, control and intelligence uh, would be affected. So in other words, Pine Gap and the Northwest Cape uh, would, would, be, would be incompatible, he believed, uh, or at least I read him as, as, as believing, uh, yeah. uh, would be incompatible with the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So it remains, um, it remains unsigned. And it's interesting that that, that, is, um, that amounts to me as an uh, almost an official government acknowledgement that we are part of the US nuclear strike capability. Oh, well, I yes. I don't think we've officially admitted that. No, no, that's right, that's right. Um, we, we, we say in the white paper, Defense White Paper 2016, that only the United States uh, extended deterrence, the nuclear umbrella, uh, would be a guarantee uh, for Australia. Uh, but there are certain uh, aspects of that that are not always appreciated. For example, uh, the Northwest Cape, which is uh, the Harold Holt Communication Center, is the one that allows uh, communications to be sent to uh, submarines. That, it has systems which allows the United States to send firing orders to its hunter-killer submarines directly from the continental United States without Australia's knowledge. Yes. Right. And so what, why is this alarming? It's alarming because the United States has built a network of undersea and overhead sensors at choke points near China's coastline, allowing it to monitor Chinese ballistic missile submarines as they try to gain access to the open ocean. Yes. Now, U.S. hunter-killer submarines can trail them and sink them at the outbreak of hostilities, eliminating China's small nuclear deterrent. And so China then has an incentive to launch first if it believes an attack were imminent. What, what we've done is, is contribute to a more, not less dangerous region. Uh, and uh, the, 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 
in 2008, the government signed a treaty giving the United States uh, all rights, uh, necessary rights of access to the station at, at Northwest Cape. Yeah. So the U.S. can actually decide to attack China using Australian facilities without our knowledge. Yes, and, the, and it is actually without our knowledge. Yet I think the official line, and correct me if I'm wrong from the government, is that we act, they use our base, the, their bases here or facilities, joint facilities here, because they're joint facilities, of course, and with the full knowledge and compliance. Consent. Of the Australian government. So Yeah, so it's a full knowledge and consent. So, so we, ha we have in a, a parliamentary statement made clear what full knowledge and consent means. It means the government has full knowledge of and consents to the capabilities that are located at Pine Gap and the Northwest Cape. It doesn't imply full knowledge and consent of the use of those capabilities in every specific operation. Right, okay. Okay, now on that, and um, we'll move on. Last week, we had our Defence Minister and Foreign Minister um, called into Washington for the, for the Osmin talks. Yep. Um, now, my understanding was that they were going to take place by teleconference, but that was changed um, a little while before to, to be brought in. Um, we have, I've, I've gone through the communiques, the joint communique from the Osmin talks, and one thing, there's a lot of things in there that aren't said. And in particular, I want to ask you about their signing of the Statement of Principles on Alliance Defence Cooperation and Force Posture Priorities in the Asia-Pacific. My understanding, this is a secret, um, a secret agreement that we're not allowed to know the details of. Uh, well, we have what's called the Joint Standing Committee on Treaties. Yes. Uh, and that is uh, has the power to examine um, any treaties or arrange or, or agreements we we get into with other countries. Um, this might be a way of not allowing that to happen by, in the first instance, just calling it a statement of principles rather than uh, uh, like a precise agreement. And secondly, uh, you know there is a bipartisan consensus um, to not rock the boat, and so uh, the major parties uh, probably would not like to see that 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 inquired into. Right. And some of the things that were being discussed at the Osmin talks, I know at the last Osmin talks, they were talking about the possibility of hosting a missile base in Northern Australia. Yes. And um, they were talking this year about increased troop deployments and an expansion to US facilities in Australia. And mm -hmm. um, have you got any inside gosh or ideas um, on where that's heading to? Oh, well, I certainly don't have anything inside. I'm not an insider. I, I, but, uh, but, but I don't believe you need to have that much of an inside because you can deduce uh, what, is, what is the plan from um, uh, the publicly available details of the spending. Um, it's an attempt to locate uh, military infrastructure closer to the same time zone as the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, I mean, I'm referring to the longitude, naturally. Uh, because it means that the six to eight days it takes to get across the Pacific Ocean, which is very deep, um, vulnerable to attack, uh, can be eliminated if you go straight up north uh, from Darwin or any other, uh, any other country in the region. Of course. And um, it's interesting you mentioned China, of course. How can we talk about militarism without mentioning China at this point in time? I think, I don't know whether we've just concluded or whether we're still involved in some freedom of navigation, so-called exercises through the South China Seas, where only about a week or so ago, 
five Australian warships were turned away um, by... Well, yeah, yeah. FONOPS means something quite... FONOPS is almost like a show of force. You know, you're actually steaming yeah. through. I don't believe we accompanied the United States uh, on uh, the more provocative ones that were carried out. Um, and, and of course, the other side would say uh, that China itself is being provocative. But either way, uh, no, uh, we, ha we don't uh, accompany them on, on, on the more provocative ones, but the public probably doesn't appreciate the extent to which Royal Australian Navy personnel are located on some of the American ships. In some cases, they are actually driving the ship on the bridge. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, but it just speaks to the whole co the, the whole concept of the interoperability between the Australian and um, US yes. militaries. The South, the South China Sea is very large. I mean, it's not, it's not there's like there's an accidental thing. It's 3.5 million square kilometers. By, by way of uh, comparison, uh, Western Australia is 2.5 million square kilometers and South Australia is 1 million square kilometers. So if you were to take WA and South Australia, that's the size of the South China Sea. Uh, compared with an actual sea, well, the Mediterranean Sea is 2.5 million square kilometers, the south size of Western Australia. So yeah. the South China Sea is actually pretty big. It just looks small compared to the Pacific, which is next to it. <laughs> yeah, but, but none, no, nonetheless, the uh, um, freedom of navigation are provoking. They are what I would call cocking a snoot, perhaps, at the, Ch at the Chinese government by um, American and Australian vessels insisting on their right to be there. Yeah. The, uh, look, the, 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 uh, I'm an Australian, like you, and our responsibility is to examine our own government's actions. Uh, one can't let pass, though, that um, certainly within the perceptions of the states of the region, uh, China's own behavior has been quite provocative. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, th there was a time when it had only land border disputes. Yes. Uh, it, it had land borders, I think, with like 16 countries. And it settled 14 of those border disputes on terms more favorable to the other country than to itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, the two that it, that it didn't settle were the ones with India and some other thing. But uh, now that it come, it's come to the maritime dimension, and as China has become stronger, um, I think uh, they have in, themselves engaged in behavior that certainly regional states would consider to be quite provocative. And it is quite interesting uh, to see the way in which uh, Chinese intellectuals are very closely connected to the Chinese state, to, the, to Chinese state power. Right. Yeah. One of the things, one of the very, one of the very interesting things about the Chinese version of, of uh, socialism or Marxism is they have totally jettisoned what used to be one of the core components of an earlier version of Marxism, namely support for self-determination. Yes. If, if you were from a previous uh, generation, you would know that um, support for self-determination of national minorities um, was not inconsistent. Uh, with your understanding of how to run a Marxist or a socialist society of some kind or a Leninist society, yeah. uh, whereas that has completely disappeared. And it was probably always present, that opposition to self-determination was probably always present uh, in Chinese Marxism because of the peculiar nature uh, in which it arose as an independence struggle against a foreign occupation and as a need to unite a very disparate uh, land. Uh, and so the Chinese Marxism and its identification with, with Mao Zedong thought, uh, I think it's always been, it's always had this opposition to, to minority self-determination. And yes. that's become very, very, very pronounced in the case of Xinjiang uh, and Tibet. 
Yeah, yeah. And and just even more recently, as recently as this morning, in fact, the um, um, news about China around the Galapagos Islands and their fishing fleet around the Galapagos Islands. Yeah. Um, uh, there, there is a separate, there is definitely scope for a separate, uh, a detailed and, and sober assessment of, uh, uh, of China's behavior, how it sees itself uh, on, on your show at a later stage, I think. Yes. Okay. Okay. And okay, look, we're running, we're running out of time. There's just always as, as ever so much to cover when I'm talking to you, Clinton. Um, but I'm aware that you've been talking at Senate committees. Yeah. Um, now, part of what I, I spoke about, um, regular listeners may recall the um, my concerns re Australia economic complexity according to the Atlas of Economic Complexity, um, I raised a couple of months ago on this show. Um, now, you've got some ideas, some thoughts about how um, that complexity needs to, how we need to be more complex because of... Um, Australian interest and national national interest and national interest just isn't just being about um, receiving foreign investment because foreign investment is not necessarily for the best interests of the Australian people. Yes, but, but um, in the interests of the, I guess the upper tiers. Let's use the cliche and call it the one percent of Australian capital. Yes, one, one thing concerns me: this economic complexity. We are seeing a rise in defence industry in Australia, unprecedented rise in defence industry. Um, mm -hmm. Both state and federal governments are boasting about how, how, how many of their companies, for example, are involved in the F-35 program. Is there a concern? I've got a concern. Do you, um, what do you think about the concern that um, part of the push for the Australian increase in defence manufacturing is based on trying to increase trying to kickstart i guess the um re-kickstart the um manufacturing base in australia in an effort to increase our complexity and are we oh. doing this on the on the on the back of the arms industry um look i don't believe it's got anything to do with increasing economic complexity but rather a way of uh building uh, resilience and capacity to participate in, in military projects with the United States. The F-35 is made by a number of countries. Uh, I just want to go to what economic complexity is so that there's no misunderstanding. It's basically economic development as opposed to pure economic growth. <clears throat> and it's not a new idea. It, it goes back to like 90 years ago to Joseph Schumpeter, uh, who talked about economic development involves changes in economic life that arise from our own initiative from within rather than being dragged along by decisions made by investors overseas. And so economic complexity is just economic development, a diverse economy rather than one that exports primary products uh, like we do. Um, now, how would you do that? Uh, well, one way to do that uh, is to uh, set up, uh, to, well, to be strategic about it, okay? In um, the post-pandemic world, uh, we have to understand that there is going to be a greater emphasis on uh, resilience, but also having to deal with 
with, with global warming, uh, the need for, for electric batteries, electric cars, uh, renewable uh, energy, rechargeable batteries. Um, and these rely on something called critical commodities. In 2013, Geoscience Australia conducted a study called Critical Commodities for a High-Tech World. And it found that Australia was rich in rare earth elements in, in, in lithium, tantalum, thorium, titanium, tungsten, zirconium. These are very critical uh, to the European Union, Japan, South Korea, the United States, and the United Kingdom. Now, the way to, to, to go about doing what we've always done is just to let them have it. Yes. Charge them a price and let them have it. And then we can then buy the smart stuff they built, like electric cars, once they've taken our, our lithium and our cobalt. Uh, rather, what I think we should do is establish a nationally owned company, uh, a national critical minerals company that, that exercises ownership and control of strategically important minerals. And just like Norway, which owned, which owned it set up Start Oil, its own state oil company, and was able to use the revenues to provide a much higher standard of living uh, for its own people, as well as to be generous uh, with the rest of the world. Now, we could then use a nationally owned critical minerals company to increase domestic innovation, support high valued, valued sectors, um, and that would increase economic complexity. We can also put in place conditions on foreign investors who want to buy into some of these critical commodities. Okay, this means technology transfer, local equity participation and training. So we should be able to say that if you want to come in here, that's fine, but you don't get to take the minerals and then just ship them and manufacture them, say in California or somewhere else, and then we just buy them here uh, or in, in Seoul or in anywhere, you know, anywhere else in Germany. Uh, rather, uh, we would like to have the provision of know-how and technical expertise in the form of feasibility studies, designs, tacit knowledge, um, and then a joint venture can be set up where they can have some of the profits and we can have some of the profits. But this cannot happen in the absence of a, national, a nationally owned um, critical minerals company. Sure, but not only critical minerals, the same argument could be made for iron ore and for yes. oil and for natural gas. And uh, you know, you're right, but the thing oh. is, um, uh, the given uh, the billionaire WA families that control that, yeah. uh, the resistance is going to be so huge. I'm saying it's uh, easy to get into the ground level before it's a mega industry. And prove the model. Yeah. Now, um, Australia, it's interesting you mentioned rare earths because um, the Osmin talks also spoke a lot, spoke about the ambers. Um, about maintaining the supply chain for rare earths, and particularly yes. from Australia. Yes. We do have an Australian company, Linus, um, that is one of the only rare earths processors outside of China, and uh, I, they're doing their, a lot of their processing in Malaysia at the moment, and I can only assume they're using Malaysia because the... Um, the environmental safeguards and restrictions in Australia would make it unprofitable. Well, and that's precisely the reason they're going to Malaysia, yeah. Yeah. And, and there have been protests in Malaysia too. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and Linus has now entered a deal with the United States to provide um, rare earth or processed rare earths for the, for the US military. Yes. Um, uh, the future of, 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 of hypersonic weapons... Um, um, submarines, uh, basically the the weaponry of the future is basically the uh, civilian technology of the future plus weapons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look, if you look at an aircraft, uh, an aircraft is 
the inside of an aircraft is basically as, as simple as, uh, and low-tech as the inside of a bus that takes you from Canberra to Sydney or Canberra to Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, what makes the plane smart is the avionics, the, the electronics that make it fly, allow it to fly, and the engines. Yeah. Well, those were developed through the military system. Yeah. And then they were handed across to the, to the civilian uh, side of it. Uh, in order to uh, uh, turn it into, into, into passenger vehicles, passenger aircraft. Sure. Um, and so when we're talking about uh, air air and the Osmin, yes, uh, I fear that there, there is a, uh, an agreement or the plans to have an agreement to simply connect us into uh, a global value chain with the United States capturing most of the value and we get treated like a quarry all over again. Yes, and that's always... And it's always been the case that the technology has started with the military. And I, I should, you know, point out example, an early example of that would have been um, telescopes yeah. were, were developed so that the um, navies could see the sails further than the, uh, the opposition could see their sails. Um, and, yes. on, and, and on it's, on it's gone. Um, look, Clinton, we could talk like this all day, brother. Um, oh. But... <laughs> Unfortunately, I've only got a I've only got a half hour show. And well, so, let's let's take over the station, and then we can just uh, do it, uh, you know, for hours. Oh well, if we're going to take <laughs> over the station, let's have let's take over three AW. They've got a bigger <laughs> got a bigger broadcast engine than we have. Um, I've been talking to Clinton Fernandez from the University of New South Wales in Canberra, and raising a whole lot of issues that I urge you all to think about. And I'll talk to you again next week. Um, thanks for listening. You're on 3CR, 855 AM, um, 3CR Digital, uh, maybe through all the W's at 3cr.org.au or from your state-of-the-art police surveillance helicopter in the sky. Talk to you next week.